invite you to turn to two portions this morning, one that you'll find in Genesis chapter 5 and the other in Hebrews chapter 11. Genesis chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 11. I said last Lord's Day that we want to enter into a short-ish topical study entitled Lives Well Lived, and our intention is to go through some of the characters of Scripture and glean from the record that is given to us concerning them. We're coming this morning to Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, first of all, we'll read from verse 21. hear the word of the Lord. So we've introduced to a genealogy here, and those that live and those that die. Genesis 5.21 reads, And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived an hundred eighty and seven years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech seven hundred eighty and two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were nine hundred sixty and nine years, and he died. And then over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11, a single verse that you find, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Amen. The Lord bless his word to us this morning. Let's, let's pray. Let's look for his help. You need the Lord to speak to your heart, and I trust that I'll not be a hindrance in that today, but rather help, and that the Lord will minister to your soul. Lord, hear the prayers of thy people who long not to hear from a preacher, but to hear from the Lord. So help me to get out of the way grant that there would be an encounter with the living God this morning. And for those that love Thee, that they would truly come face to face with their Savior and with the power of His Word. And may there be today a real advancement in sanctification. May there be growth. May there be understanding. May there be all that would come under the simple prayer, Thy kingdom come. Grant us thy spirit, Lord. Save those that are not saved, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have two very crucial truths that become very evident to those who do a study of our Savior. We learn, first of all, what he is doing for us and the importance of that. 
He's not just living, he is, he is living for us, and that has its own significance. But He is also exemplifying things for us. We are to learn from His life. We are to draw from how He lived and learn from it in a way that impacts how we instruct ourselves and, and live in our own existence. Now, we know a man's salvation entirely depends upon Christ. There's absolutely nothing we do to contribute to our own salvation. You will never be in heaven if you think in your mind there is something you have brought to the table that in some way you're impressing God or you're contributing to your salvation. There's something you've done that the Lord says, well, you've made up. You've made up everything then that is necessary. Now you're one of mine. To be in heaven, let's lay it out plainly, to be in heaven means that you're entire trust, your entire hope is on Christ. There is no other argument. There is no other additional statement. There is no other uh, person or thing or church or uh, any activity that you may mention. None of it has any weight when it comes to us being justified before God. And so if you are not yet saved, I urge upon you this morning to consider it sincerely. You must be saved. You must trust in Christ. You must believe on the Son. He must be your Savior. That is, you must have embraced Him, not just as a ticket out of hell, but as the one who is reigning over your heart. And now you want to be subject to Him in all that He has said. But what is remarkable as we read our Bibles is to learn that God has always drawn attention to certain individuals that help us grasp both these things, those that show us what Christ does for us and then exemplify a godly life for us. And so we glean through many of the characters mentioned to us in the Scriptures, and we, we see these things. We see both of these things, and we must then draw those lessons and apply them and understand them as the Lord has intended. But there, there's, there's certain an emphasis through this series. There's an emphasis upon not just understanding what Christ has done, but, but what it means, what it means. Lives well lived is, is a clear indication. When we, when we deal with a theme like that, we are looking at the consequences of the gospel. Now, we're not going to ignore the, the gospel in its essence altogether. We're not going to ignore who Christ is and what Christ has done. We will endeavor to understand that. But to use the language of the Apostle Paul, it is crucial that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. You need to know how to possess your vessel. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. If we don't know how to possess our vessels, that is, we, we don't know how to steward one of the things we thought about last Lord's Day. We don't know how to steward what God has given. We don't know the significance of our lives and what it means for us to be given this, this window we call life. So, as we progress in our series, we will endeavor to show, yes, the truths of the glories of Christ, and what He has done, but also how we ought to live. And we begin today, as I've said, with Enoch. And before we develop the life of Enoch, there are a number of ways, of course, in which he points us to Christ. This is a study in and of itself to muse on this. First of all, we might draw from the reality that he was born into a a wicked environment, a day of great sin. If you see in Genesis 6, verse 5, we are told, and this is, yes, it's slightly after his day, but I think the indication is that this is, this is all building and crescendoing towards this. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And this is the kind of day that Enoch is living in. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ, he lived in a wicked day. And he was despised and rejected of men. But also, we learn about Enoch that he walked with God and he pleased God amidst that wicked environment. Pointing to Jesus Christ, our righteousness, who, who lived perfectly amidst the wickedness of his own day. And all the hypocrisy and all the false religion, all the silly nonsense that he saw in his time, and all the demon possession and all the wickedness that was there, yet he walked with God. And he had this testimony that he pleased God. And of course, what is unique about the Lord Jesus Christ is that that testimony comes as a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uniquely set apart, pleasing God, walking with God that He might be our righteousness. He also warned of future judgment. We'll see this as we progress, but he warned of future judgment, which points to Christ, obviously, as the prophet who warns of future judgment, but who is himself the judge, the final judge of all men. We will learn also that God appointed the, His circumvention of death. We've read of it already, which points to Christ as the resurrection and the life. Here is one who, who escapes death. And, and even in Genesis 5, we keep coming to the same, the same reality. These men lived long lives, but they died. They died. They died. They all died. But here's one who didn't. And he creates this window of hope, of, of opportunity, that, that there's a way to circumvent death. That is through Christ. Christ, the resurrection and the life. And we are told that God took him. God took him pointing to the ascension of Jesus Christ. That having done His work, He is then received up into glory, taken to be with the Father at His right hand forever. These are wonderful Christological truths that you may muse upon, but I want us to flesh out the details of Enoch's life and look at it this morning and consider how we will see this as a life well lived, truly a life well lived, and it has much instruction for us. And so, I've titled the message simply, Enoch, He Who Walked With God. He Who Walked With God. Note firstly with me this morning, Enoch's profession as a believer. We learn that Enoch was the seventh from Adam. In fact, even the epistle of Jude points this out, that he was the seventh from Adam. And while we're not told of his conversion, we're not given a detail here similar to, say, Lydia in Acts chapter 16, where Paul goes to the city of Philippi, and he goes by the river, and he, he preaches the Word, and her, her heart is opened, and she attended on to the things that were spoken by Paul, and, and you see her conversion, right? You, you have those various details given to us in Scripture of men and women in their conversion. We're not given that kind of detail here, but if we take our time to think through what the Spirit actually reveals to us about Enoch, we might discover more than we would first realize. We know, just to step back for a moment, we know that Adam was taught by God how to approach God after the fall. He was instructed in that way, that no longer was there this fellowship, no longer could he walk with the Lord in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day in perfect harmony and fellowship. He was now cut off. There was death that had taken hold upon him, and now his only way 
was through a substitutionary atonement, through death that would be uh, typified in an animal, in a creature, and so the Lord clothes Adam with coats of skins, removing from him his own sham effort of fig leaves, and, and kills an animal and puts the skin of an animal upon him, indicating that you need this. Something must die, shed its blood, you must be clothed with something other than yourself. And it's all pointing to what the seed of the woman would ultimately do in that promise that was given to him in Genesis 3.15. This is, this is there. This is the gospel in this embryonic form, at least how it's revealed to us is embryonic. I am inclined to think these men understood far more than we often give credit to them for. I think they knew a lot more. And so it is obvious then that Adam teaches his children. And Abel is instructed, like every good father, every good parent, you want your children to know what you can pass on, especially the most important things in life. And Adam then leads by way of example in the worship of God. And he, he shows Cain and Abel what it means to worship God. And you find then Abel coming along, bringing his sacrifice with, with just these little indications that Abel has been instructed in the right approach to God, and by faith he made his offering. Indicating this evangelical life within his soul, he is, not, he is not simply trusting in what he is offering. There is true saving faith in his heart. That means he is presenting it in faith that God then would take that and accept it as it pointed to what he really needed. Well, did this influence Enoch? I'm inclined to believe that it would have indicated, or would have been communicated to him and changed and transformed his understanding of God, that he would have been aware of these things. In fact, if you do the math, you realize that the vast majority of Enoch's life, Adam was still alive. So you have direct, a direct prophet, and Enoch's growing up and is maturing of Adam himself, who was instructed by God in proper worship. So this is, this is influencing him. And in some way, he understands all of this. But we are told in verse 21 of Genesis 5, just look there at your Bibles, Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. He walked with God, it says, after he has this son named Methuselah. It would seem, it would seem, it would appear that when Methuselah was born, or at the point of Methuselah, whether it was during the pregnancy or around that time, God begins to deal with Enoch in a particular way. Now, is this his salvation? Possibly. At bare minimum, there is an awakening going on spiritually in Enoch's life at this point. That seems to be the indication of the text. Maybe converted, at the very least, quickened in some fashion to spiritual things. He, he is moved by this event, and no doubt events themselves do not change our hearts. All right, we know that. Events themselves do not change us. But God often uses events. 
He often uses things as a catalyst. He is pleased to take something in our lives and, and use it then to, to break us, to mold us, to shape us, to, to, to do something in our hearts and lives. Some of you know the experience. You may be familiar with the feeling of becoming a parent for the first time. And it can be one of those events. Just, just a simple fact that you realize, <laughs> you know, when you get that news, you're bringing life into the world and you're responsible. It can waken you up. Those of you who may be younger, maybe yet to enter into the experience of having your own children, I say to you, it can be a very, very alarming time. And, th- and this is maybe what goes on. This, this, this little, these details that are given to us. He's living sixty-five years then. Methuselah comes along, and Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years. God uses the birth of a Methuselah to awaken this man. Maybe there's something going on in your life, and right now you're kind of just cruising along, trying to deal with it by your own strength. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, that many times God will use these, these memorable junctures of life, whether they're perceived as blessings like having children or challenges of various sorts. God, God, is, God speaks. He speaks. He humbles. He makes us stop. He makes us pause. How many have testified to it? This happened, and I, I was made to just take stock in a way that I was not previously. But there also seems to be some things that God revealed to him at this time. First, God revealed the end of the present world at this time of his life when he, we might say, professed faith. He was made to believe that God would destroy the world after his son would die. Methuselah. How do we know that? It's not uniformly believed, so I'll just say that now. Not everyone looks at Methuselah's name and and interprets it in the same way. Some simply interpret it as man of the spear. There are some that look at the subroots of the words in his name, and in looking at those subroots, they see something more. There's, there's, there's these two words that appear in his name. One is death. The other is the idea of it being sent, which of course is the idea of the, the spear, something that's thrust or whatever. The idea of sent. Death and sent. And they have concluded then that to mean that Something in the name really is indicating that when he dies, it shall be sent. That's the, the, the kind of basic understanding of his name. 
which, if true, is an alarming revelation. An alarming revelation. And you can see why, why it may awaken him. If he finds out his wife has fallen pregnant and God comes to him like he came to Zechariah and tells him his name will be John or in some other way brings revelation to him that is pointing to some catastrophic event as was to take place, you can see how sobering that would be. Thus part of Enoch's awakening included or may have included God revealing a truth to Enoch before he named his son. This idea that when his son would die, at that point God would destroy the world. And if you do the math, you realize that Methuselah dies the same year the flood came. There's sobering application in this. When you think just for a moment, when you step back and you if you if this is correct, Enoch is awakened when a son comes. His son's name, Methuselah, is indicating when he dies it shall be sent. There's a sobering sense of judgment that's coming upon this wicked world in which he lives. So part of the message that he grapples with, part of the message that I would suggest he would later preach is that his own son stands as a monument. And insofar as he is alive, it's still a day of mercy. But when he dies, it's up. It is over. And what is striking then is this, that Methuselah, Methuselah, this one who's perhaps particularly given as this, this, this window. Like, this is all the time you have. Once he dies, that's it. It's up. The world will be destroyed. That it is that man who lives longer than anyone else. The long-suffering of God. The mercy of the Lord to sinners. His condescension. His, his, his grace. As he calls upon sinners, repent. As he raises up and awakens a man like Enoch to walk with him and to preach his message. Warning of judgment. Warning of judgment, as we shall see. And yet the whole time, there's just this, this, this expanding window. Like, when will Methuselah die? Well, he lives longer than anyone. God is so long-suffering to men, towards sinners. But judgment will come, men and women. Judgment will come. It always comes. And when it comes, it is swift and it is utterly devastating. And no one could have ever envisaged, they could never have imagined all their conjuring up of the possible judgment that Enoch ends up warning them of. All of that could never, ever have painted the scene of the catastrophic devastation in the global flood. So as time goes on, there's that old man, he keeps preaching, you know, when his son dies, it's up. 
Then he eventually, he's taken, as we'll see, Methuselah perhaps stands in his, in his place. Certainly Noah comes along. He takes it up. He's a preacher of righteousness. He's warning along the same vein. But everyone mocks. Everyone laughs. They eat and drink and give in marriage. Just carry on. Just mocking the way they mock the Lord Jesus Christ. No real consideration of the, the language of judgment that's being put before them. And just living it up. Living for self. Living as yourself as your own God. Thinking judgment will never come to me. But it does come. It does come. And we trifle. We trifle. And every one of us needs to take this. This because this is part of how you live your life well. It is with a sense that God, our God, is a consuming fire. And he doesn't trifle with sin, and he has and the extent of his mercy that endures and endures and endures and endures, but it comes ultimately to an end. And when it does, you're, unless you're in Christ, you're not prepared and you have no idea. God revealed the end of the present world when Enoch professed faith or was awakened. But also, God revealed the end of his present existence when he professed faith or at this time as well. In Hebrews 11, verse 5, where we read, we're told, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And there may be in this this indication that throughout the book of Hebrews, let me just stop for those not aware. Hebrews 11 is about true saving evangelical faith in Jesus Christ. Its relevance, its relevance in the context is that it is being written to people that are being tempted to give up soul faith in Christ, to Jews that are being tempted to return to all their ceremony. And the writer of the Hebrews is, is weaving out these arguments of the greatness of Jesus Christ and when we come to Hebrews 11, there, there's this, look, really what he's saying is, look back at all the heroes God has given to us as Jews. And they all live by faith, but it's not just this, this faith in the sense like they have a religion. It's, it's the fact they have looked to Christ. That's what chapter 12, verse 2 then says, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. These are people who looked to Christ. That becomes clear in, in some of the language that's given concerning the likes of Moses and so on. But Enoch is also the same. He has a true saving faith. He is trusting in the promised seed. And by faith, Enoch was translated. So as he believes, he is told something. He about being translated that you should not see death. Because as you go through Hebrews 11, you see what God does with these individuals as they believe in Him. And He has changed that He should not see death and was found not because God had translated Him. And, and as, as I say, there may be in these words that sense that this was something He actually was expecting. That His faith in the Lord is being applied in a way where God said, you'll not see death. 
So when your son dies, it's over. But you yourself will not even see death. He believed then that God would cause him to circumvent death, which we will consider more in just a moment. But is not this, is not this what every Christian believes this morning? You will not see death. John 11, he that believeth in me will never see death. So he, he, is, he is trusting in this. This one he is looking to, this, this promised seed, this, this one that would be identified later as Messiah, this, this one will will bring an escape from death. Enoch becomes a, a signal of that to the entire world. Secondly, Enoch's preaching as a believer, not only his profession as a believer, but his preaching as a believer. To live our lives well, men and women, requires that we preach in some fashion, whether we're called to be preachers, per se, or not. We are all communicating a message. Our speech is important. What we say, this is emphasized in the book of Proverbs in a very profound fashion, what we say or what we do not say. The ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is summed up for us in Acts 1 verse 1, all that Jesus began both to do and teach. Both aspects are crucial, not just what he did, but also what he said. And we're told something of Enoch's ministry of speech, what he said as he lived in this wicked generation. Turn for a moment to Jude, Jude's epistle. I made mention of Jude a short time ago, but you, you need to go there because it's fascinating how Jude takes the time to make mention of Enoch as he well, really what he's doing is he's, he's, he's warning of the fact that they're false teachers. They're people who, who profess to, to know the Lord, but they don't. And so there's this need for contention in the church for the faith, to maintain the faith, and not let it be sidetracked by wicked men. You see that from verse 3. I, he, he wanted to write of the common salvation, yet it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. So he taught these ungodly, lascivious, wicked men who deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ and so on. And then he goes on to talk about the, the fact that this is not a new problem, this is a historical problem, always has been the case. And then he refers to Enoch in verses... 14 and following. So you have these wicked men mentioned. There's spots in your feast of charity, verse 12. Verse 14, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these. These, 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 these times, these wicked men. He, he preached of the, about these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Then he goes on then to make his point. These are murmurs, complainers, so on and so forth. 
But Enoch, and, and this is the point, that this, is, is establishing the fact that this is an ongoing problem. It's not new. Go back to Enoch and we know this. And here's a man who was a preacher. And he preached truths that relate to judgment. And in the detail given to us, it's pointing actually to the second coming. So not only was he aware of some judgment that was coming in the present, namely the flood, but he has also given insight into the future final judgment. So here's a man who's preaching continually of judgment, warning people of judgment amidst a world where there's much ungodliness that miscommunicates the message and has a poor leaven within the visible body of those that profess to know the Lord. So this is what he preached. And if we were just to summarize it in our pondering, he is a man who is living, let's, let's just state it again, he is living in an ungodly era. And he is called to speak clearly, decisively, accurately, in terms of divine evaluation of what's going on. This is something to imbibe. This, this, again, we're trying to learn from Enoch. Okay, what can I learn from Enoch? He lived in a day at least as wicked as the day in which we live. He is warned that there's judgment to come. And he doesn't keep that judgment to himself. He preaches it. He warns the world that it's coming. So let me ask, this is what I was asking myself as I was going over this and thinking about it. Am I, am I living in a wicked generation? Yes, I am. Am I aware that judgment is coming? Yes, I am. Do I then tell this wicked generation that judgment is coming? We are not motivational speakers. That is not the business of the church. While the church appears to have a, a, a tendency to lean into that kind of speech, wanting always to speak positively, this, this, this falls far short of the calling of every believer. That You, Christian, you, Christian, being bestowed upon as Enoch was, given insight as Enoch was, amidst the day when many were ignorant, just like the day in which you live, you know judgment is coming. And yet the whole world wants you to be silent about it, to never talk about it, to only speak kind fluffy language that gives hope and joy and makes everyone have an inflated sense of ego. But this, this isn't your calling. This is not our calling. We live in a wicked day. We are called to deal with sin and its consequences. I hope you appreciate that when it comes from this pulpit. I do. I hope you appreciate it. I hope there isn't in your mind, I, I hate the, the I, I have no real time for the Enoch kind of messages. What, what a wretched way to think. Here's a man who walks with God. He walks with God and part Part of him walking with God is his awareness of the incomprehensible glory 
and holiness of his God. Maybe he has an understanding like Isaiah that even the very holy beings of heaven, without sin, veil themselves before the presence of this God. So eternity presses upon him. He, he comes out of his closet and he, he, he brings with a heart flamed with passion and zeal for God's glory. He warns of judgment. And we are all called to testify to Christ in all that he is. And he is judge. Luke 12, 8 and 9 says, Jesus speaks, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. When we talk to men about their souls, we, we ought never... When it is seasonable, when the conversation leans that way, we ought never to mince, in some way dilute the language that we use concerning sin and the judgment. Enoch warned the ungodly in his day. He knew judgment was being sent, which is why he names his son Methuselah. You know it. You know it. You know judgment is coming. Of course, the pragmatic mentality will look at Enoch and then ask the question, well, was he successful? Let's compare Enoch's success to, to my success in my positive ministry. And we don't have anything to go by. We don't know for sure how successful he was, perhaps he influenced Noah. Maybe he only influenced Noah and his own family. Maybe. We don't know. We do not know. We do not measure the fruitfulness of his ministry. We measure the faithfulness of it. He walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. And he had this testimony that he pleased God. Finally, Enoch's perseverance as a believer. His perseverance as a believer. We're told that he walked with God. In verse 22 of Genesis 5, it's repeated again. In verse 24, Enoch walked with God. This tells us a number of things. The character of his perseverance, of his believer. We want to see, how, how do we understand this whole language of walking with God? What does it mean to walk with God? Look at it. He walked with God 300 years. 300 years. Okay, do a little calculation. Where does that throw you back in your you know, American history? 300 years. Think of all that's happened in those 300 years. That's a long time. At least as far as we measure it. He walked with God. Walks communicate a sense of 
consistency. The language communicates the kind of consistency of his experience with the Lord. He walked with God 300 years. All things changed. Culture became worse. As an older man, he conceived a decline. I mean, let's not imagine things were any different. Oh, they maybe didn't have some of the technology we have today, and perhaps how they lived may be slightly different, and they didn't have Prime to bring you something to, their next, to the doorstep next day. You know, there were things that were different. A lot of things, a lot of things, just as they are today. The revelry of men, the desires of men, the longings of men are just the same. This is what Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, they're eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and the sense of his language isn't criticizing these activities as if they're always sinful. The sense is, amidst looming judgment, they're completely unaware of it and have no concern. So it's an indifferent day. People don't care about the things that they ought to care about. But he walked with God. He walked with God. And maybe some of you are hikers. You know this. You'll know it better than I do. But I have walked and went on you know, short, relatively short hikes with, with people who do this kind of thing and have went Machu Picchu and places like that. And they, they talk about the importance of rhythm. If you're really going to do extensive walking, you need to understand the importance of rhythm. That you walk to a rhythm. So you have to get into this mode. It's almost like you shut out the world. They don't tend to talk to each other a whole lot unless it's a very easy walk. If you're talking about strenuous walking over a long time, all day, up an incline, there's not a whole lot of talking going on. There's generally just this sense of getting into a rhythm and just constantly, each step, just plodding along. And that's, that's important if you're going to last And it's true spiritually. It is true spiritually. The church does not need individuals who have constant bursts of fits and starts, who are ready to take over the world one week and then they're gone next week. You know, it's, it's, it's plodding. It's plodding. You need plodding. Was that not what Kerry said? You know, when he remarked upon maybe why the Lord blessed his missionary endeavors, he, he was good at plodding. Seven years of no salvation, no, no fruits, but he plodded. Yes, most missionaries need to know how to plod. Most people in God's work need to know how to plod. This is the Christian life, getting the rhythm, don't being, not being up and down. So, so we pray then, we understand <clears throat> that in Enoch there was a certain steadfastness. He walked with God 300 years. That takes steadfastness. And there's another thing we learned, that if there's to be a life well lived, it will require steadfastness. It's not, it's not the dad who comes at Christmas with the massive Christmas gift. But 364 days of the year, he's never to be seen. That's the kind of existence many children face today. I know far too much about it. It's the plotter. Every day, nothing grand. It's just the, it's the ordinary. It's the ordinary meat and potatoes. 
That's what matters when it comes down to it. We fathers need to know this. We, we can't compensate. We can't work and never be there or listen to our children and then imagine that one or two weeks of vacation make up for 50 weeks of the year of not being there. It, it can't, cannot So we pray for steadfastness, like Enoch. Yes, like our Lord Jesus Christ. It was by his steadfastness that he weaved out the garment of your righteousness. The righteousness that has been imputed to you. He, he walked with God. Jesus walked with God the entirety of his life. By that steadfastness you gain heaven. Without it, you're lost. By that steadfastness he embraced the cross and all of its suffering. And so Enoch walked with God. Anna's walk pleased God. That's what Hebrews 11.5 tells us. He had this testimony that he pleased God. What a testimony that is. So we, we, we take from that this, this kind of steadfast plotting, right? Long term. All right. Let's get the basics right daily. And let's make sure we're doing that. Not not these big ideas about huge ministry vision and all this. Let's just get, let's get the basics right. Let's plod there. Let's keep plodding there. And then if other doors open, let's embrace them as they arise and we're able to, to facilitate them or give ourselves to them. But we are, we are, to, we are to see this. You don't please God. You are to please God. You say, well, I'm, just, I'm a depraved sinner. I can't please God. It says he not pleased God, and he was still a sinner. And we can live our lives in such a way, a life well lived can actually be said to please God. It can. Paul says this, 1 Thessalonians 4. He tells us there in verse 1, Ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God. It's like people who say, we can't be good. Right? Because the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. No, I get it. I agree. I agree. There's none good salvifically. You can't impress God by being good in and of yourself. No. But then I also read Barnabas was a good man. He was a good man. And that's what the Spirit of God says about him. And I see Enoch, he pleased God. And Paul's saying, we showed you how to please God. And so, I, I, if I'm to live my life well, I have to have this. I can't be, I can't be, I cannot be. No, I cannot be using the imputed righteousness of Christ to excuse me from what God says He can do through sinners saved by grace. I can't. That's to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. The scripture's full of walking, what it is to walk. Romans 6, 4, walk in newness of life. There's a change there. And this, you walk in that change. Walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. It's not about you anymore. It's like, Lord, it's you. It's you, constantly you. Looking to him. Fill me with your spirit. I want his will. Romans 8, 1. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16. 
Walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness or promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and envying. That's Romans 13, verse 13. Walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Ephesians 4, 1. Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Ephesians 4, 17. Walk in love. Ephesians 5, 2. Walk as children of light. Ephesians 5, 8. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Ephesians 5, 15. Walk worthy of the Lord. Colossians 1, verse 10. Walk honestly toward them that are without. 1 Thessalonians 4, 12. Walk in the light as He is in the light, 1 John 4, or 1, verse 7. Walk after His commandments, 2 John, verse 6. Your walk, walking with God. And you, know, you cannot have a life well lived by ignoring these texts. You, can't, you cannot live your life well by saying they're irrelevant to me or they aren't to shape my heart and life. We're to, we're to look at that language and just shed tears and say, oh dear God, help me. Because maybe Enoch woke up 65 years of age and realized 65 years had gone down the drain. 65 years of living to himself. 65 years of satisfying his own lusts. And God gives him a son. And not, he's revealing judgment's coming, Enoch. Judgment's coming. He gets, he gets himself together. He, he, get, he vows, that's it, that's it. No matter what, I walk with God. No matter what. And I please God. I please God. Yeah, communion with God, in your fellowship with God. He sought the face of God. So, so are you walking with God, are you? You see the character of his perseverance as a believer. He's like Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But very quickly before we close, the consummation of his perseverance as a believer. Hebrews 11, 5 again says he wouldn't die. He was translated. He's, he, he didn't die. And as I said, I think he was somewhat aware of it of something of it. His trust in the Lord, his faith in the seed of the woman was going to circumvent death, the very thing that God said, in the day you eat thereof you will die. Here's a man that's being told it won't happen. So faith actually circumvents death. He's going to be translated. I don't have time to go through all of this with you, but the idea of translated indicates a change in place or state. And you have it used in that way in Scripture. In terms of place, you find it in Stephen's sermon, Acts 7, 16. So Jacob went down to Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over. They were translated into Sechem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought. They were transferred, translated. But not just place, state. And in this we see it in the New Testament used of conversion. So you have in Acts 19, 26, moreover you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away, translated, much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Or Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So, I pull that together. The word is used in terms of place. It's used in terms of state. And I think of Enoch before he was translated from one place to the other, he 
had to be translated in his heart from one condition to another. He was a man who was dead in trespasses and in sins, but was made alive by faith. And then later on, he was translated from this world into heaven itself. Yes, that's, that's, that's what's necessary. You can't go to heaven. You're not going to be translated from this world into the presence of God unless you've been translated in your heart. You've been transformed by real regenerating power, a real change of affection. You love Christ. You're living for Christ. You want to walk with God. Yes, yes, there has to be. There has to be. Surely there has to be. And anyone who has the Spirit of God, this little, this little thing in their souls, that's, oh, if only I could walk with God. I want to walk with God. Oh, to walk with God. There has to be. I mean, what's it all about? Is it, is it, is it really? Is that what we've come to? Christianity is just, I dodge the flames of hell, but I still live according to my own desires. Is that where we've come to? And I fear in far too many places, God forbid they would be here, that that's where we've reached. I'm not going to hell. I'm a Christian. But do you want to walk with God? Do you? Do you? Do you? And what does that look like? I'll tell you where it begins. It begins with repentance. Oh, we have grieved him. We have grieved him. And we're like, we're being told, Methuselah, Methuselah, judgment's coming. We fall down our faces. And we say, Lord of mercy, we deserve judgment. We're just as guilty as everyone else. Have mercy. You will not see, you will not see heaven unless you have been translated in heart in the state of your own soul. There'll be no moving from this world into the presence of Christ unless you have been transformed in your heart. And you know something of this. There's something in you that craves to be more like Christ, to walk with God, to be like a man like Enoch. You need to begin at the beginning. I don't care what you've known, what experiences you've had, you need to go right back, right back to the start. But on your face before God and confess your sins. This is life and death. Could not be more serious. What, a life well lived? What do you want me to do? Tell you how to live your life when you don't have the basics in order? You're not even right with God? You know, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if Enoch's understanding of, of judgment and what was coming to those, not just those who would not believe, but certainly had an understanding of those who do believe, like escaping death, living on beyond. Maybe he preached that too. Maybe that's why Job was able to say later on, Job 19, 25 and following, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. I see Job, Job. Job, maybe, maybe there's some transfer of that to Noah and then on down. This understanding of what's to come that Enoch had. Ultimately, I believe in the translation of Enoch from earth to be with the Lord. And yes, it was to be with the Lord, by the way, not to a divided Hades. No, he went to glory. It was absent from the body, present with the Lord for Enoch. It was. It was. 
And when Asaph is struggling over the wicked world in which he lives, and he's struggling with it in Psalm 73, and he goes to the house of God and he begins to learn certain things, what does he learn? What does he say? Psalm 73, 24, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. And the word receive there, receive me to glory, is the same word that speaks of concerning Elijah. Taken. He'll be taken. Watch him. He'll be taken. It's the same thing. Taken where? Taken where? Taken to be with the Lord. Oh, what an awful thing. To walk with God in this world and then be plunged into some underworld. No. No. (laughs) Even if it's absent of judgment. No. No. It's with the Lord. That's where Enoch went. He, he enjoyed fellowship with the Lord through his life, and then he pined. He pined for a day when he could walk with God, and there's no sin at all. And he got his desire. Do you pine for glory, Christian? Do you? We, we, we sang it, the choir sang it, when this passing world is done. Do you not see in the language of that a man pining for glory? Ah, yes. This is a life well lived. As I tie this up, it tells us in Hebrews 11:5 that he was not found. He was not found because God took him. He was not found. In other words, people were looking for him. He was missed. He was missed. Will people miss you? For what reason will they miss you? The world misses those who walk with God. The world will miss you, not if you aim to be missed. If you simply aim to walk with God, the world will miss you. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. I'm just a spokesperson, beloved. I'm just, I'm just a preacher. But if there's truth in these words, then they come from Christ Himself. And there is then that authority that ought not to be ignored. We're living in days of judgment, looming judgment whether it's the final days of the very, very end or another humbling season for the world, which it has known in bygone times as well. It matters not. We are to walk with God. Lord, help us. We plead for help. We plead for grace. And whatever you did for Enoch at 65 years of age, some of us must confess we need the same. We need to be awakened. We need to be broken. We need to 
come to a fresh realization of the brevity of life and the reason why we're still here. We are to walk with God as a testimony before a perishing world. Help every Christian from the youngest to the eldest, from the most mature to the most immature. Grant grace to us to walk with God. We plead with thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.